what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. This is our first episode of 2024, so thank you so much for joining us. We've got a fantastic show tonight. I'm going to be discussing one of the most talked about events in human history, which is of course the sinking of the Titanic on her maiden voyage in April of 1912. Now there are so many conspiracies regarding this one, it took me a long time to put this show together and that's because there's just so much to pick through. There is so much about this event that is suspicious, so many anomalies, so many intriguing side paths that you can go off down and there is one huge conspiracy out there relating to the Titanic that links it to the formation of the Federal Reserve and it goes like this. JP Morgan actually owned the Titanic and as we know, JP Morgan was one of the key architects of the Federal Reserve Act that went through Congress on December the 23rd, 1913. Now that was 18 months after the sinking of the Titanic and the conspiracy puts forward the idea that JP Morgan got some of the opponents of the Federal Reserve Act, some very rich and powerful men, namely Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss and John Astor and he convinced them to get aboard the Titanic for the maiden voyage and then he sunk the damn thing, killing his opponents who were going to try and stop the Federal Reserve Act. And of course, they were super wealthy people with a lot of political clout. So they could have actually done so. So that's the conspiracy. And we're going to look into that one in part one tonight. And trust me, my conclusions on this one are not the same as all of the other conclusions you've heard before. I did my own independent research and I came up with some shocking information which I don't think anyone has heard on this one. So I'm going to leave you on that cliffhanger and you can listen to part one to find out what that is. Now as we go through the show after that we're going to look at some of the other conspiracies that are even more profound than that one in my opinion. And then in part two we're going to get to the occult and esoteric side because I actually think Personally, the Titanic was a part of the spiritual war, of which we are all still a part of now. It was a key seminal event, and we talk about that spiritual battle between good and evil. So, a huge episode tonight. It's a fantastic way to start 2024. Members, please sign in on parallelmite.com to listen to the full episode. If you are not a member yet, please consider becoming one. It really helps me do this kind of research. And if you enjoy part one, you're really going to love part two. So, thank you so much for listening. I hope you're all well healthy and reasonably happy. I wish you all the best for 2024 and like always I will see each and every one of you in the next one. Okay everybody let's get into this episode. So this conspiracy that we're going to be discussing in part one 
or at least the first part of part one relates to the creation of the Federal Reserve, the debt enslavement system, which is an occult system. It's designed to trap you in perpetual slavery because every single fiat note that is printed, whether that's at the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England or any other central bank, every fiat note that is printed is printed with debt attached to it, which puts every man, woman and child in the country in a system of slavery because they have to work for their entire lives to pay back an existential debt that can never be repaid. So it gets passed on from generation to generation to generation. Now, you might be wondering, what the hell does this have to do with the Titanic? Well, as I laid out in the introduction, there is a conspiracy theory that claims there is a direct link between the sinking of the Titanic and the creation of the Federal Reserve, which is, of course, the main central bank in the world right now. Because the US dollar is the global reserve currency and the Federal Reserve System, which is a private central bank. Don't forget that it's a private central bank owned by banksters. And that is why it's linked to the Titanic, because one of the men who was a part of the formation of the Federal Reserve, John Pierpont Morgan, J.P. Morgan, he was also the owner of the Titanic and a lot of very powerful, rich and wealthy people died on that ship. And the claim goes that some of them, three of them in particular, who we're going to get to later on in the show, were opposing the formation of the Federal Reserve and had the capacity to stop it from being passed through Congress, the Federal Reserve Act in December of 1913. So they were coerced onto the ship and of course we know what happened next. Now one thing we have to recognize before we go on this journey is that almost everything we think we know about this event comes from propaganda, from the media, from the entertainment industry implanting this official story in our mind of what happened and how it happened. But the reality is what truly occurred during the sinking of the Titanic remains a mystery to this very day. We don't know what happened and all of that imagery we have in our head, in our subconscious, it actually comes from the mainstream media, it comes from film and TV. Now what we do know is that from the verifiable facts, nothing about the story, the official story, makes sense at all. And that's the first big red flag that something else might have been going on here. So in part one, we're going to piece together some of the more verifiable and accurate elements of the narrative by following the money, which is always how I start these things, and considering some of the often repeated conspiracies like the one that I just mentioned. Then we're going to add to these details some of my own research and some of my own ideas to try and figure out just what really might have been going on here. So let's start with the facts so far as we know them. The Titanic was built by Howland and Wolf in Belfast for a company called the White Star Line, which was a British company that was eventually bought out prior to the completion of the Titanic by a company called the International Mercantile Marine Company, or IMM for short, and this was a company that was owned by John Pierre Point Morgan. So he actually owned the White Star Line and therefore he owned the Titanic. Now, of course, we know that John Pierre Point Morgan, along with many other very rich and very powerful banksters, they were actually behind the creation of the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve Act was actually passed through Congress the year following the sinking of the Titanic. In fact, it was about 18 months after the sinking of the Titanic. On December the 23rd, 
1913. And of course, the sinking of the Titanic was the 15th of April 1912. Now, if you've listened to my previous episode called Vampire Bankers and the Central Bank Scam, which is episode number 25, then you'll know the long and torrid history the US had with banks just trying to create a central bank, presidents trying to oppose it, getting assassinated. And then ultimately, they managed to get it through on December the 23rd of 1913 during the winter recess where most congressmen were not even there they were away with their families and it got silently pushed through so it was a conspiracy from the very get-go it was devised years earlier on Jekyll Island which we've learnt about through Edward G Griffin's fantastic book The Creature from Jekyll Island so we know this history and if you haven't heard that one go back and listen to my episode you'll really enjoy that one but it will also set you up for this one But in brief, JP Morgan essentially owned the Titanic and was also one of the co-conspirators who met on Jekyll Island a few years prior to the passing of the Federal Reserve Act in order to plan it, along with a coterie of international banking oligarchs, including, of course, the Warbergs, the Vanderlips, the future head of the Federal Reserve, Benjamin Strong. And under the guise of meeting on this private island called Jekyll Island for a duck hunt, and they travelled mostly under pseudonyms and separately so as not to draw attention because these were some of the most powerful and wealthy men in the world. So they did this entire thing in secret and they travelled to Jekyll Island and that is where they came up with the idea for the Federal Reserve which was a privately owned central bank that would monopolise banking in America. It would place a central bank at the top of a pyramid structure then all of the other banks would have to hold their reserves with the central bank so it would force all of the small and medium-sized banks to hold their money with the Federal Reserve. It would allow them to create a boom and bust structure because they could control the quantity of money in circulation or should I say currency. And of course it enslaved the nation of the United States or should I say the corporation of the United States because what happened was now the Federal Reserve would lend money to the corporation that was the United States of America and they would have to pay back interest on that debt to the privately owned central bank. So now you had a small coterie of international banksters who were lending to the United States at interest and therefore the country was getting itself heavily indebted. And this enabled the banksters to completely control the nation and its politicians and its industry And they were already extremely powerful and wealthy, make no mistake, but the central bank was the final nail in the coffin. Because after you get a central bank, what happens is every time they try and roll over the debt, they ask for more collateral behind the scenes. So the banksters were now starting to take all of the assets of the US. It began with all of the federal buildings, then it was the land. Then in 1933, there was a gold confiscation, or at least that's how it's marketed where they asked all of the citizens to turn over their gold. Now, what do you think was really going on there? That was more collateral for the national debt. So that is how the whole scam system works, and that is why all of our countries now are completely beholden to some private for-profit banksters who come from these so-called elite families. And of course, above them, I think there is actually a very dark entity. But let's not digress too much. Let's get back on track. So we've got JP Morgan, who is both the owner of the Titanic, which sunk on her maiden voyage in extremely suspicious circumstances, as you will find out, with a group of very powerful and wealthy men on board, no less. Also co-creator of the Federal Reserve 
and the sinking took place right at the time when the Fed creation was being discussed. So it is undeniably suspicious in and of itself. It's sort of two separate conspiracies taking place at exactly the same time and there is one person who links the two and that's JP Morgan. The Titanic was a white star line ocean liner built at the Howland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast, Northern Ireland and it was designed to compete with rival Cunard Lines Lithuania and Mauritania. The Titanic was the second of three Olympic class ships and along with its two sister ships, the Olympic and the soon to be built Britannic which was originally named Gigantic, were intended to be the largest, most luxurious ships ever to operate. Construction of the RMS Titanic, funded by the American JP Morgan and his International Mercantile Marine Company, began on March the 31st, 1909. Titanic's hull was launched May the 31st, 1911, and its outfitting completed March the 31st the following year. Titanic was ginormous. It was 882 feet 9 inches long, which is around 269 meters, and it was 92 feet 6 inches wide. It had a gross tonnage of 46,328 tons and a height from the waterline to the boat deck of 60 feet. Although it enclosed more space and therefore had a larger gross tonnage, the hull was exactly the same length as the Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic. Now listeners, we'll come back to this one later, it's very important. Titanic contained two reciprocating four-cylinder triple expansion inverted steam engines and one low-pressure Parsons turbine which powered three propellers. There were 29 boilers fired by 159 cold-burning furnaces that made possible a top speed of 23 knots, which is 43 kilometers per hour. For its time, the ship was unsurpassed in its luxury and opulence. The ship offered onboard swimming pools, gymnasiums, a Turkish bath and a squash court. First-class common rooms were ornately decorated with elaborate wood panelling, expensive furniture and other elegant decorations. The ship offered three elevators for use of first-class passengers and, as an innovation, offered one elevator for second-class passengers. Okay, listeners, so it's important not to underestimate just how much marketing and hysteria went into both the Titanic and its sister ship, the Olympic, which was an almost identical ship that launched just before the Titanic. And we're going to be coming back to that one later on in the episode. But it's important to understand, like I said, that there was so much marketing and hype around these ships. And in the marketing, they used very specific language, also stating that the Titanic was the unsinkable ship, which is really interesting in and of itself. When marketing anything in life, you generally don't want to have people thinking about the worst case scenario, even if you're saying this will not happen because it puts in the subconscious of people the image of something you don't want. So to say the unsinkable ship, well, it also puts in your mind a ship sinking. So it was a very odd thing for them to do. And yet that was one of the key marketing terms that was used. I found it very odd unless, of course, you're trying to impress upon somebody's psyche a certain event or certain image kind of like magic. So by saying unsinkable, 
you actually insert into the subconscious the idea that this ship will sink. Although, of course, the person who hears the word unsinkable doesn't know that. Now, of course, it could also have been because if the ship was going to sink, they wanted to have in the public consciousness the idea that it was an unsinkable ship. And therefore, the blame could not have been the people who owned the ship. It must have been human error. There's no way that the ship itself was faulty because it was an unsinkable ship. So that's another thing that could have been happening. This kind of word magic or just really playing with the psychology of the masses. But we also have to remember that the ship was being marketed as the most opulent and luxurious transport that was ever made. And that of course increased its value too, which was important if you wanted to insure it for a large sum. You had to make it seem like it was the most luxurious and opulent ship if you was gonna then try and get a huge insurance policy on it. And again, this all comes back later on. But just to give you an idea of the claimed facilities that were run on board, and it gives us an impression of what it could have been like, two parlor suites, each with 50-foot private promenades, 67 first-class staterooms and suites, decorating designs included, Louis Sayers, Empire, Adams, Italian Renaissance, Louis Quinns, Louis Quatorz, Georgian, Regency, Queen Anne, Modern Dutch and Old Dutch. Some had marble coal burning furnaces. There was also a gymnasium replete with rowing machines, a stationary bicycle, an electric horse, a heated swimming pool, the first ever built into a ship, a squash court on F-deck, a Turkish bath, two barber shops with automated shampooing and drying appliances available for all classes, first and second class smoking rooms for the men, reading and writing rooms for the ladies, first and second class libraries, a 10,488 square foot first class dining saloon with seating capacity of 554, authentic Parisian cafe with French waiters, a veranda cafe, with live palm trees, oh wow, a piano in the third class common room, which was a luxury for its day, electric lights and heating in every stateroom, four electric elevators with operators, three in first class and one in second, a state-of-the-art infirmary and operating room staffed by Dr. William O'Loughlin and J. Edward Simpson, a fully equipped dark room for amateur photography, okay, they're having a laugh now, a 5 kilowatt Marconi wireless radio station for sending and receiving passengers telegrams and a 50 phone switchboard complete with operator for intra-ship calls. Now, while some of this could have been more marketing spin than reality, and I'm not sure about that, we'll never know, especially if an insurance fraud was going to take place, like I said, which we'll discuss later on, but you would want it to at least appear to be extremely high-end because it was going to house some of the most wealthy and powerful people on planet Earth, some of the most decadent families out there. So in the very least, it would have had to have been a grand theatre set that looked the part so that these people thought, wow, I really want to travel on that boat. And of course, the only reason I say that is because if you were indeed intending to sink the ship, you would have been wanting to save as much money as possible. You wouldn't have wanted to put all that expenditure into it. So you'd have probably gone for more of a pantomime look where it was a bit of a house of cards. It looked like it was stable. It looked good inside. But if you scratch beneath the surface, it was probably all plyboard, more like 
a fancy set design. Okay, so let's move on to the journey in question, the maiden voyage. And the journey actually begins in Southampton, so let's start there. After Titanic arrived at Southampton, it spent six days taking on additional crew members, including Captain Edward Smith, coal and provisions. And just so listeners are aware, there was actually a national coal strike taking place at that time. On April the 10th, 951 passengers boarded the ship, and then the ship set sail for Cherbourg, France to pick up more passengers. Titanic then departed for Queenstown, now Saub or Cobb, Ireland, where it arrived at 11.30am on the 12th of April. Two hours later, Titanic sailed for New York, and according to best estimates, the ship now carried around 1,316 passengers, 325 first class, 285 second class, and 706 third class passengers. The crew of 913 brought the total number of people aboard the Titanic to 2,229. Fortunately, the ship was not full. If it had been, it would have resulted in even greater loss of life. Now, here's a really interesting thing that I found out in my research, everyone. There actually was 2,222 passengers aboard Titanic for almost a century. For almost a century, that was the number that was given. Then at some point in the past 30 years, it was changed to 2,229 passengers. Now, I have no idea who changed the numbers, but it seemed to get revised at some point. But for a long time, it was 2,222. And that's extremely interesting because the number 22 comes up again and again and again in the story of the Titanic. It was sailing at 22 knots, which is extremely interesting because that's almost top speed. And of course, the ship had no reason to be going that fast. It was nighttime, it was way ahead of schedule, it was going into an ice pack, which had been warned about six times, and yet it still decided, or the captain still decided, to go full force as fast as he could. It almost feels, when you read it back, like he was trying to get to a certain location for a certain time for a very specific reason. And I'll leave you on that cliffhanger because we're going to go now to the disaster. Disaster. At 11.40pm on the 14th of April, three days after departing Queenston, Titanic struck an iceberg. Captain Smith had received six warnings from other ships about icebergs in the area, but seemingly chose to ignore them. The ship was travelling at 0.5 knots below its top speed. Titanic had been constructed with 16 supposedly watertight compartments, but they were not truly watertight. The bulkheads dividing the compartments did not reach completely to the deck above, but had a gap at the top. If a compartment filled with water, it could spill over and flood the next one. The iceberg ruptured five or six compartments and water poured in through several gashes. Titanic could have stayed afloat if only four compartments had been flooded, but five or six doomed the ship. As each forward compartment filled, water flowed over the top of the bulkhead, much like water in a tilted ice cube tray. Very slowly, Titanic began to sink at the bow. At first, many passengers were unaware of the collision, while those who knew about it were unconcerned. After all, they were on the largest and perhaps safest ship in the world. Many had even called it unsinkable. The iceberg was treated as an object of curiosity. Now, I just wanted to interject here, listeners, because only six people apparently actually saw the iceberg 
And of those six, a number of them died in the drowning afterwards. So two people apparently drowned. And the other four went on to have careers elsewhere. So only four people survived that saw the iceberg, apparently. Now, interestingly, not a single passenger saw the iceberg and not a single passenger registered that there was a significant hit of an iceberg. Some people said they felt a very light shudder, but that was about it. Now, the reason I say this is because we've got it etched into our brain that Titanic hit an iceberg. It's what the movie showed us. It's what novels and books and the mainstream media tell us happened. However, do we actually know that it struck an iceberg? We don't. And we have to always treat the official narrative with suspicion, particularly when there isn't much evidence for it. And in this one, there is very little amounts of evidence for it. So we just have to take it that it could have hit an iceberg or perhaps something else happened. We just don't know. Captain Smith ordered that a distress call be sent out at 12.15am on the 15th of April 1912 but did not direct lifeboats to be loaded until 12.35. Lifeboat number 7, the first one launched, entered the water at 12.40 and it carried only 28 people, far fewer than it could hold. A similar story was repeated as other lifeboats were launched. None were filled, although some of the latter ones were almost fully occupied. The last two lifeboats were launched at 2.15, only five minutes before the Titanic went down. If all of Titanic's lifeboats had been filled, another 472 lives would have been saved, including all women and children and almost 650 men. But many men and older boys were denied entry to partially filled lifeboats by one of the ship's officers who interpreted the order, women and children first, as women and children only. So like I said everyone, the lifeboats were not filled to anywhere close to capacity. And this could have had something to do with the fact that the crew were essentially completely new to the boat and new to each other. It was essentially a crew of hired guns, people who had been brought in from many different vessels to man this maiden voyage. So that lack of experience could have partially explained it, but still, you have to think this is extremely suspicious. They knew the boat was sinking, and yet they were lowering lifeboats knowing full well that there was barely enough lifeboats for half the people on board, and yet they were lowering them with 30-40% occupancy. Now I can't help but think looking back that a part of this would have been the many elites on the boat refusing to get into a lifeboat with people who were of a lower status, second class and especially third class people, and I think they would have said, we're not getting in a boat with those other people. So I think it would have been these extremely wealthy and elite families saying, we want these boats just for ourselves with the luxury of space. Now, why do I think that? Well, that's because that's how they behaved. And after the Titanic sunk, there was a lot of memorials made, but only to the people who lost their lives in first class, only to the men who drowned from first class. They actually ignored everyone else. That was the way it was. That's the way they saw the third class. And I think it would be the same today if they could get away with it. That's just how these people are. Not all of them, but a good deal of them. But speaking of capacity, one of the other really strange things about the Titanic's maiden voyage is that the ship in general was actually nowhere near full capacity in terms of its overall passengers. And that again, for such a huge event, the most luxurious ship ever produced, the Titanic, is another real oddity. 
Now it's perhaps partly explainable because many people cancelled last minute, mostly people from first class. And of course that is one of the biggest red flags but we will come back to that one in a moment. Hundreds of books have been written about the Titanic and why the opulent liner sank in 1912 on her inaugural voyage taking some 1,500 lives in the worst maritime disaster of the day. Everyone agrees that an iceberg was the proximate cause. Well, I dispute that one, but let's continue. But the nature of the damage that led to the appalling loss of life has stirred debate for 85 years and the issue sustained by a nightmarish sense of disbelief. How could a ship so costly and so well constructed, the biggest and supposedly safest vessel then afloat, one hailed as unsinkable, turn out to be so extraordinarily otherwise? Why did the Titanic go down so fast, and was there no way to avoid the disaster? A persistent theory is that the iceberg tore open a 300-foot gash in the side of the 900-foot-long luxury liner, but the ship was lost off Newfoundland in water some two and a half miles deep, and no author or naval detective was able to resolve the true mystery. Even after the liner was found in 1985, expeditions that probed the icy darkness of the deep sea tended to focus on the sheer spectacle of the ghost ship rather than the nature of the wound or the wounds inflicted by the iceberg, partly because the bow was made in mud, hiding the damage. Now an international team of scientists and engineers that repeatedly dove to the Titanic's remains last August is unveiling a surprise answer, likely to end the long debate. Peering through the mud with sound waves, the team found the damage to be astonishingly small. A series of six thin openings across the Titanic starboard hull. The total area of damage appears to be about 12 to 13 square feet, or less than the area of two sidewalk squares. Just think about that for a second, everyone. Less than the area of two sidewalk squares. What doomed the ship was the unlikely placement of the six wounds across six watertight holds, the experts say. A different pattern of damage might have avoided the disaster that started late on April the 14th, 1912, a quiet Sunday evening, notable for its clear sky, chilly air and calm sea. Titanic was a victim that night. William H. Garska Jr., a naval architect and aide of the analysis, said last week in an interview, everything that could go wrong did. So again, I find that awfully suspicious. Like I said, we don't know if what they're telling us about what they're seeing down there is true, but if it was true, six perfectly placed gashes on the side of the ship in separate areas, six separate gashes. That doesn't sound to me like a boat that's scraped along the side of an iceberg. That sounds to me like somebody perfectly placed six gashes on the side. It could have been done with explosives. It could have been done with all manner of ways. It could have actually just been the seacocks that were left open. We don't know. But that article was from 1997, and don't forget, it was only first discovered in 1985, which again is strange. Lots of ships knew where the location was. There were ships that went to the rescue for the Titanic and to pick up all those passengers. So the location was known, but it wasn't rediscovered until 1985. And since that time, they've tried to stop people going down there. They've tried to stop them many times, including recently with the Titan Submersible, which you'll remember in 2023, just a few months back, 
was meant to be going down to the wreckage in the submarine and it imploded at the bottom of the seabed, killing lots of rich and wealthy people. How interesting, what a strange link up, which I think is something ritualistic. I think what happened recently with Titan was not an accident. I think it was intended to implode. And a part of that could have been because they didn't want people going down there. In fact, they took a court case out in the US against the company who bought the rights to the wreckage to stop them going down there. Why don't they want them to see what is in the wreckage of the Titanic? Well, I would guess it's because there's something down there that completely negates the official story. And they tried to stop them going and they couldn't. And then lo and behold, they go down in this submersible and they all end up perishing at the bottom of the ocean. Nobody ever sees them again. Then the company comes out and says, we're not gonna go down to the wreckage anymore. A little bit suspicious, isn't it? Just like the official narrative of the Titanic. Now I'll come back to that Titan submersible later because there's lots of occult link-ups to the Titanic disaster. And I personally believe there is something ritualistic about these ships sinking, something very dark at the heart of them but more on that later in part two. So the narrative kept changing and we went from a 300 foot gash to six slits that perfectly punctured six watertight holds. And don't forget, there were six warnings of icebergs given prior to the sinking. So there's a 666 link up. Now for this to happen the way it did, the ship would have had to have turned last minute. And we are told that that's what happened. It exposed the side of the boat to the iceberg rather than hitting it head on. But that quote at the end there is important. Everything that could go wrong did. And I raise an eyebrow at any official information on this one. Like I said, the story will continuously change and we cannot trust it. Now what we do know is that just prior to heading full speed ahead into the pack of ice, the Titanic received a warning from a ship called the SS Californian, a cargo ship captained by a man named Stanley Lord, and it had just anchored about 16 miles away from the supposed site of the Titanic disaster. Now, this is extremely significant because the SS Californian was a cargo ship, and it was supposedly doing the same crossing as the Titanic. It was going across the Atlantic, but they decided to drop anchor for the night. Now, interestingly, they just lay there in the Atlantic Ocean, no explanation why. They only had crew on board, no passengers at all. And they were carrying a very mighty and hefty cargo. And guess what it was? 3,000 blankets and 3,000 woolly jumpers. Just think about that for a second. Its cargo was 3,000 blankets and 3,000 woolly jumpers. It was sailing across the Atlantic to deliver what you could fit into the back of a car. The back of a car. And it had a whole crew on board. It had the captain on board. Just think about the cost of sailing across the Atlantic using coal during the early 1900s. Are you seriously expecting us to believe that this is legitimate? That they were sailing a tiny cargo of some jumpers and sweaters and 3,000 no less. Don't forget the capacity of the Titanic was around 3,000. This to me is a huge red flag. It makes no sense. There was a coal strike going on at the time, so it would have cost a fortune. Nobody would have chartered a cargo ship to send 3,000 jumpers and 3,000 blankets. And why 3,000 jumpers and 3,000 blankets in April? It makes no sense. This was a plan in my opinion. And it makes sense to me 
that this ship got told to wait there and to look out for the Titanic. It sent the Titanic the last warning. And then things got really strange. Because as the Titanic started to sink, having supposedly hit the iceberg, it started shooting flares into the sky. Now, for an emergency, you're supposed to have red flares or blue flares. But the Titanic, inexplicably, only had white flares. Now, the ship, the SS Californian, could see these flares going up and the captain was told there's white flares going into the sky, but the captain decided to do nothing. He just waited and he even went to bed. They decided not to go to check them out because they said, well, it's white flares, but he did apparently keep asking, is there any red flares? Is there any red flares? So it seems to me like he had foreknowledge that something was going to happen and he was told to wait there. And if he was told to wait there with 3,000 jumpers and 3,000 blankets that just so happened to be the capacity of the Titanic, it seems to me somebody had set this one up. And the SS Californian was used because it was either meant to save the passengers and something went wrong, because remember, we're talking here about what I think is a pre-planned event, or the people that were on the Titanic that understood an event was going to take place, were told, don't worry, the SS Californian's going to be there, it's going to have all of the blankets and jumpers on, it's going to come and save you, don't worry. Maybe it was the captain of the Titanic that was told he had to allow the ship to sink, it was a insurance scam, or maybe he was told by the secret societies, by all accounts he was a Jesuit, I don't know if that's true, I couldn't verify it, but apparently he was although there was Jesuits on board, and we'll come back to that one later. So many different areas of this one to look at, everyone. But it seems to me like the SS Californian was a plan. It was told to wait there, and it was told either to go across if it saw red flares, or it was told to wait for an order to go across. Now, they didn't see any red flares, so the captain didn't send anyone across, and it actually just sat there the entire time the Titanic sank, and it didn't do anything until the following morning when it was too late. So this sounds to me like somebody in the background was pulling the strings. They replaced the flares with white ones only. And maybe the Californian was used to convince people on the Titanic to go along with the plan. And we know that afterwards in the inquiry, there was no blame apportioned to anyone on the Titanic at all. But there was blame apportioned to the captain of the SS Californian. So he could have been planted there, unbeknownst to himself, to take the blame. So somebody was engineering this situation, and I think they were pulling strings all over the place, but I think the intention was for the ship to go down. The Californian, I think it was a double cross. They promised people, don't worry, if you go along with the plan, you'll get saved. But that wasn't the case. I think all of these strange anomalies can only be explained if you go with the theory that somebody planned to sink the ship, they needed people to go along with it, and therefore they set up a situation that seemed to be what they were telling them, that you'll be saved and everything will be okay, but ultimately there was a double cross done. Now let's turn our attention to this massive conspiracy, because people say everything that I've just said is true, or there or thereabouts, they might have their own take on it, but they say, yes, it was meant to go down, yes, somebody had foreknowledge of it, but they also attached this part to it, that three men were supposedly invited onto the Titanic 
with the intention of being killed that night because they opposed the Federal Reserve. So now let's focus on that bit specifically because I've made my case about the first part. Yes, I believe it was sunk intentionally, but does this specific theory about why it was brought down hold any water? Well, we're going to look into it now. In 1910, seven men met on Jekyll Island just off the coast of Georgia to plan the Federal Reserve. Nelson Aldrich and Frank Vanderlip represented the Rockefeller financial empire. Henry Davidson, Charles Norton and Benjamin Strong represented JP Morgan. Paul Warburg represented the Rothschilds banking dynasty of Europe and the Rothschilds were banking agents for the Jesuits and hold the key to the wealth of the Roman Catholic Church. According to theorists, the plan for the Federal Reserve was set in motion, but experienced some opposition to its creation. Three of the richest people in the world opposed the Federal Reserve in the United States because they knew the repercussions of a private institution dictating the monetary trends within the country. These people were Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss and Jacob Astor, all of which were aboard the Titanic when it sank. So there you go, that's the main conspiracy that's laid out. Usually they just talk about the three men, Guggenheim, Strauss and Astor. And they often also say, and none of these men had anything to do with banking. They were industrialists, so they paint them out to be separate from the Federal Reserve crew. And I think that's important for laying out the conspiracy, for making them seem like they were actually going to oppose it. Now, does it hold any weight? Well, first and foremost, were they three of the most wealthy men in the world? Technically, some of them were. Like Asta, for example, he was the head of the Asta Empire. However, they came from three of the wealthiest families in the world. But, for example, Benjamin Guggenheim was not the head of his family. He was not the one leading the Guggenheim Empire. He was the fifth son and he was more involved in the arts. But they were all extremely wealthy and all extremely connected and powerful. So it's fair to say they were three of the wealthiest men in the world or three of the wealthiest known men. Because ultimately, there is a layer above them, of course. That's why I personally believe I think if we know their names, it's not them. It's not them. They get to be the rich ones. They get to hold all of the items in trust. So all of the palaces, all of the land, all of the jewels, whatever they owned, they own it in trust. And they actually have people above them who allow them to have that position so long as they do their bidding. And I think that the layer above them will be families that go back far, far longer than the US has been around for. I'm talking thousands of years, intergenerational power, intergenerational wealth. And then at the very top, let's face it, it's going to be a supernatural entity. It's going to be a demon. It's going to be the devil. It's going to be pure evil. That's who they would serve. But going back to Guggenheim, Strauss and Astor, could they have swayed one way or another, the Federal Reserve Act getting passed because like I said, 18 months after the sinking of the Titanic, the Federal Reserve Act was put through Congress. Now, of course, they were extremely wealthy and extremely powerful and connected, so they could have certainly made a big impact and probably convinced politicians or funded different parties to stop the Federal Reserve Act going through. I think they certainly could have had that power. So the conspiracy holds ground in that it's at least feasibly possible. They were extremely powerful and wealthy. They were on the boat and they did have the capacity and resources to try and shape public opinion and particularly the opinion of other industrialists and politicians. So yes, they could have been a threat to the men who were trying to create the Federal Reserve if 
they actually opposed it. So now let's look at that. Did they actually oppose it? Is there any evidence of this? Let's begin with Benjamin Guggenheim. The Guggenheim family were Ashkenazi Jews of German descent who made their fortune mainly in the mining and exploration industry. The patriarch of the family was Mayer Guggenheim, who along with his wife Barbara emigrated to the US and had 10 children. Now if you look into the family tree and the names of the families the Guggenheim's children married into, you will see names like the Rothschild family, the Strauss family, the Lieb family. They were also heavily involved in sponsoring the creation of art galleries and museums, including founding the Museum of Modern Art. And listeners, you'll have heard my recent episode with Art Monica where we discussed the development of modern art, which was really an attempt to debase the mass consciousness. They destroyed us through modern art. So the Guggenheim family were at the forefront of this social engineering also. They funded the first modern art gallery. They were very much involved in social engineering. So just having a carefree look at who they were and what they were up to, they certainly don't seem very heroic to me. They seem to be just like all of the other elite families that you find around that time who were banding together to gain as much wealth as possible and also take part in this mass social engineering program. And like I said, to say that they wasn't involved in banking, which is something that is often claimed is also not quite true. Benjamin Guggenheim's sister was married to a Rothschild. He had another sister that was married to Alfred Lieb, who was the head of the New York Stock Exchange. And if you fast forward to today, the Guggenheim family are known for their investment firm managing over 300 billion in clients' money. So they're involved in finance even today. So when you hear people claim this part of the conspiracy that Astor, Strauss and Guggenheim had nothing at all to do with banking, simply not true. The Guggenheim family were absolutely enmeshed with the other elites. And it seems to me like they were a part of some of the key agendas like changing art from this beautiful renaissance type art to the more modern art which is of course debasing uh, humanity's soul is what I would say it's there for. Now in terms of Benjamin Guggenheim, he wasn't the one actually running the Guggenheim empire at the time. It was his brother Daniel Guggenheim who in 1918 actually came 13th in the very first Forbes Rich List alongside Charles M. Schwab, Thomas Ryan and J.P. Morgan Jr. So it was actually Daniel Guggenheim who had the most power in the family. And I've got this quote here. Following his father's death in 1905, Daniel Guggenheim assumed control of the Guggenheim family enterprise. Through ASARCO, Kennecott Copper and other family-owned companies, the Guggenheims mined tin in Bolivia, gold in the Yukon, diamonds and rubber in the Belgian Congo, diamonds in Angola and copper in Alaska, Utah and Chile. Daniel Guggenheim's business policies often affected entire nations. It was said that Daniel Guggenheim could make or break a government with a single telegram. Daniel was power hungry and tenacious. He suffered repeatedly with stomach ulcers and hypertension. The Guggenheim family amassed enormous wealth through their mining enterprises and by 1918 the family fortune was estimated at 250 to 300 million dollars making them one of the richest families in the world. Daniel was a member of the National Security League, the driving force for moving the then neutral USA into World War I which was headed by J.P. 
Morgan. So there you have it, everyone. The Guggenheims were definitely working alongside the Morgan family. They were in bed with the Morgans, and that's because Morgan was an agent of the Rothschilds. So Morgan himself was not the man. Morgan, actually, when he died, it was found out that he only owned 20% of his own bank. The rest of it was owned by the Rothschilds. Now, the Guggenheims also had joint ventures with the Rockefellers. They had joint mining ventures with them. So already we're starting to get this view that this family was not on the fringes of this banking community. They were actually very much enmeshed with it. And it gives you an idea of the sort of family they were. When you read about Daniel Guggenheim, he sounds very much like all the other elites. Now, was Benjamin Guggenheim different? Did he oppose the Federal Reserve? Well, at no point in my research could I find a single piece of evidence to suggest that he ever opposed the Federal Reserve. Not a single newspaper clipping, comment, nothing at all. So there's literally zero evidence to show Benjamin Guggenheim opposed the Fed. And there's lots of evidence that as a family, they were very much in bed with the architects of the Fed, like JP Morgan and the Rockefellers, for example. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that they always got on with each other and that they were friends. They were business associates, so they still could have opposed the creation of the Fed. They could have thought, well, this is going to go against our interests. But I think personally, they were probably owned by people higher up the food chain and they had to go along with whatever they were told to do, which is probably where they started to make modern art galleries. I don't think they truly had an interest in modern art. It was a part of the agenda. That's my personal take. But whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter because there is zero evidence that Benjamin Guggenheim opposed the Federal Reserve at any point. And don't forget his sister was literally married to one of the Rothschilds. Now, let's move on to the next person on the list. We're going to speak about the Strauss family. So what about Isidore Strauss? Again, the Strauss family, Jewish merchant family who emigrated to the US. The Strauss family ended up buying out Macy's. His father was called Lazarus Strauss. He was the immigrant who came across. And, you know, it's interesting because you see this pattern all over the super wealthy Jewish elites that they were moving their families across to the U.S. between 1850 and 1910. So they were getting themselves out of Germany, almost like they had this premonition or maybe they understood from the grapevine that something was coming, that World War I was about to happen. So they were moving their wealth across to the US, getting ready to set up shop over there. And I have this quote here about the family from Leon Harris, who in his 1979 book, Merchant Princes, claimed the following. The only Jewish merchant family in America comparable to the Rothschilds of Europe is the Strauss family. It is the only family other than the Rosenwalds who have amassed a great fortune and created a lifestyle as remarkable in luxury, lavishness and service as that of the Rothschilds. Now, Isidore Strauss was again somebody that I could find literally zero evidence of in terms of the claim that he opposed the Federal Reserve. Quite the opposite. Firstly, he was co-investor in the creation of the Mutual Alliance Trust Company in 1902, alongside the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, who were both involved in the creation of the Federal Reserve. So he was one of the 13 directors upon the founding of that trust company. But secondly, and far more damning, I actually found an article from the New York Times dated October the 18th, 1911. 
and this is extremely difficult to find, which makes me feel like it's planted, like this story was planted and the evidence is there so it can be debunked, but you have to be very, very good at finding things. It took me an awful long time, but my intuition said it was there and then I found something. So on October the 18th, 1911, there was an article on page 14 in the New York Times entitled, Hoarding by Banks a Cause of Panic. This, Stuart Brown says, is the objection to the Aldrich plan, which does not stop it. Now, the subheading of the article was Isidore Strauss defends them and argues that a new monetary system will give them stability. So what they're talking about here is the debate around the Aldrich plan, which was essentially the embryonic Federal Reserve Act, and it was calling for an end to the use of gold and the creation of a privately owned central bank, which would have the sole authority to create and print the nation's money supply, the currency. And it would, of course, lend it to the nation at interest. So they were debating this. Now look at the subheading of this article that I found. Isidore Strauss defends them and argues that a new monetary system will give them stability. So that's conclusive. He was arguing in support of the Aldrich plan. Now, the Aldrich plan called for a system of 15 regional central banks called National Reserve Associations, whose actions would be coordinated by one single main central bank. So this is basically the Federal Reserve System. And they would be able to create money, provide an elastic currency that could be exchanged for demand deposits. They would act as a fiscal agent for the federal government. So the Aldrich plan was essentially the Federal Reserve Act in its embryonic form. It was defeated in the House, but it came back later on and was adopted on December the 23rd, 1913, under the new name, the Federal Reserve Act. And quoting directly from the article from 1912, which is discussing this meeting between many different associations related to banking and business on the Aldrich plan's proposal to create a central bank, here is the part where it discusses Isidore Strauss's comments in relation to the creation of the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank, although it wasn't called the Central Bank at the time, it was called the Aldrich Plan. Edward D. Page of the Currency Committee of Merchant Associations endorsed the plan on behalf of the merchants in general. Mr. Page declared, Absurd, the fears expressed by James J. Hill, that the proposed National Reserve Association could be controlled by Wall Street. Robert E. Kent, president of the Merchant Bank of Passaic, endorsed the Aldrich plan unequivocally as providing additional facilities for small banks and small depositors who are at present pinched in the procuring of loans whilst big bankers or big borrowers get them comparatively easily. He thought that the plan remarkably well guarded against the political or Wall Street influence. Now, don't forget... This article comes from 1911. Now listen to this one. Stuart Brown of Stuart Brown & Co. provoked quite a vigorous protest from Isidore Strauss, who appeared as representative of the Association for the Promotion of Banking, of which he is National Treasurer. Mr. Brown declared that the country suffers far less from inelasticity of currency then from the hoarding of currency when needed, and the Aldrich plan does nothing to prevent such hoarding. Even if you double or treble 
the present volume of currency, it will still be hoarded. Since bankers in times of panic use no individual reflection, but rather the mob psychology of men at a lynching. Even today, there must be banks hoarding. Banks have 303 million of gold in their vaults and the public 220 million in its pockets. Banks have 463 million of gold in certificates and the public 333 million. The best remedy for such hoarding, he said, would be limiting the multiplication of small banks, which in the main, he said, does this panicky hoarding. This is the thing that the commission ought not to do, cried Strauss. Mr Vreeland asked whether Mr Strauss did not agree with him that the proposed National Reserve Association, though called by its opponents a central bank, was in fact, owing to its management which was representative of the whole country, the very reverse of a central bank such as that in Jackson's time. Mr Strauss agreed. I cannot tell you how greatly I appreciate the splendid work the Commission has done. You have enlightened our wisest financiers with the documents you have brought here after your study of banking systems abroad, he said. Despite possible defects here and there, you have on the whole outlined a basis of remedying the terrible conditions underlying our entire system. You cannot go too far in making the small banker understand that the plan contemplates above all helping him in his business rather than driving him out. From the moment this plan goes through, the United States will loom up as the world's chief trade center, supplanting London as the exchange of the world. So there you have it, everyone. He was essentially advocating for the Federal Reserve in 1911, and he was doing it wholeheartedly just a few months before he perished on the Titanic. Now, there's many other opponents of the proposed central bank that were out there. I can find lots of them in the newspaper articles, but Isidore Strauss and Benjamin Guggenheim were not two of them. They were not against it. They were actually working for the money trust, or at least Isidore Strauss was. Guggenheim didn't seem to have any interest in banking at all. He more was interested in just being a playboy. So if you were going to take out opponents of the Federal Reserve, Strauss was not your guy. He was in fact all in on the plan as the above article and minutes from the meeting show us. So case closed on this one for Strauss at least. And if we look at John Astor again, I find zero opposition to the proposed formation of the Federal Reserve or a central bank at all. Again, he was just enmeshed with the system and meshed with all the other families. And when you look at what they were up to, they were doing all of the things we would expect them to do. They were monopolizing industries, directing the development of culture through social engineering, the arts. They were paying off politicians. They were getting involved in the media and accumulating massive amounts of wealth for themselves en route. But one thing I would like to make clear is what happens at the upper echelons is essentially like a Game of Thrones anyways. And the reason I say that is because there's many potential reasons, therefore, why these men could have been taken out on the Titanic beyond this theory that they opposed the Fed, because there is actually no evidence for that at all. Now, maybe they were secretly attempting to derail the Fed. It's possible, yes. But like I said, there's zero evidence for it, not even circumstantial evidence. And what we do find is that they were all working alongside these families. And in the case of Isidore Strauss, he was actually 
campaigning politically and publicly for the creation of the central bank. He supported the Aldrich plan, so it doesn't get more damning than that one. So why does this theory exist at all? Why does it persist? Well, first and foremost, it's because the Titanic is absolutely one of the most suspicious events in history. And like I said, there's so many red flags there. So automatically, there is a conspiracy there, but people attach this one to it. Now, why is that? Well, at some point, somebody created this theory and we don't know who it was. We don't know who first said it, who made the original sin. But after that point, People have just regurgitated it again and again and again. And this is the problem with independent researchers. If they're just copying one another's research without ever looking into it properly themselves, they end up all falling for the same flaw. They all make the same mistake, likely because it takes an awful lot of time and effort to do independent research. And it took me an awful long time to find the article from 1911 that proved conclusively that Isidore Strauss was actually not against the Federal Reserve, he was supporting it. Now make no mistake, like I said, the Titanic story is, in my opinion, pointing heavily in the direction that a number of people, including JP Morgan, did have foreknowledge that the ship was going to sink, or some people did. They had foreknowledge that that ship was going down, but the reason for Guggenheim, Astor and Strauss being on it that day cannot be because they opposed the Federal Reserve. So it must have been for something else. And it could be that the whole story, this whole theory about them being on it for that reason is a cleverly inserted hoax that was created to detract from the many other genuine suspect elements of the narrative, including a big one which we're going to talk about next in part two. And maybe it's a spiritual thing too, because the truth is where power comes from. The truth is the word. When we speak the truth, it creates an alchemical process. It sets something in motion. And truth is the only thing that can defeat evil. It routes it out. It's extremely powerful. So in this spiritual war, it may be that they want us to fall into these traps of repeating lies unknowingly because perhaps that has some kind of negative karmic consequence on us. And it certainly doesn't do anything to overcome the darkness out there. Only truth can do that. So we have to be extremely careful not to inadvertently repeat narratives that are not true because we fail to look into them ourselves. And sometimes they can be attached to things that genuinely are suspicious, real conspiracies, but they're so cleverly inserted. It's like a deception. You have to be extremely careful. And listen, we all fall into this trap at times. I'm sure in my past research I've done it and I'm sure in the future I'll make the same mistake but I'm trying really hard to ensure that I research everything independently for this exact reason. So I would encourage listeners to take nothing they hear from anyone as truth even if it looks legit on the surface, even if there's lots of indicators it might be true but to do your own research wherever possible. Oftentimes people doing independent research are simply just repeating what they've heard elsewhere. They've had someone else say it and they've had someone else say it and they're all repeating the same thing. And in this one, like I said, it was only the part about these three men. Everything else looked correct. So people automatically assume that it must be true. But unfortunately, in this one, it just wasn't the case. Now, having said all of that, I do think there is a link between the Titanic and the Federal Reserve, only not this one. And I actually think it's an occult one. I think it goes back to that spiritual war, but we're going to save that for part two because there is so much research that I uncovered on this one. I could probably make two, three, four 
maybe even five episodes on the Titanic. So I'm going to save a lot of it for members in part two. We're going to be going into a conspiracy for which there is an awful lot of interesting evidence to suggest it's true, which is the switching out of boats. But then we're going to transition to more of the spiritual warfare side of it. And I think that's where it links back up to the Federal Reserve. So members, there is so much more to unpack in part two. And I look forward to seeing you over there. If you are not a member yet, but you would like to listen to part two of this and all other Parallel Mike podcast episodes, please join us at ParallelMike.com. And if you sign up for annual membership, it's one month for free. I wish you all a happy new year for 2024. And I hope to see you all back here for the next one. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence itself.